Welcome back to the Humans of AI. Today, we'll meet Jason Corso. Jason has spent his career at the cutting edge of computer vision across both academic and business worlds. As a professor at the University of Michigan, he's been teaching the next generation of thinkers and researchers for more than 15 years. And as an entrepreneur, he's the founder of Voxel 51, the leading framework for the visualization and exploration of datasets. Tune in to learn about what motivates Jason, his experiences across academia and startups, and more. Jason, thank you so much for joining me today. You have such a unique background as an academic, a researcher, and an entrepreneur. Lots of juicy things to uh, chat about. Thanks, Shake. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Really looking forward to the chat. The very first question I have for you, Jason, is so you've been a professor of computer science for almost 20 years now, and you've had a front row seat into how the discipline has evolved and what trending research topics are. Within the context of the past two years, with such a sharp rise in public awareness and discussion of AI, I'm wondering if you've noticed any changes in what types of students are drawn to your classes and the types of research topics that they propose. It's a good point. I mean, you know, everything changes at all times, right? So we're okay with that. But I do agree that the way things have been evolving in recent times has been pretty rapid. I think like, you know, during COVID, we had some time to take a breather and it was a difficult time, sure, but everyone was at home needing to work differently. And maybe that gave rise to willingness to take some more risk and do some more experimentation. I find now, interacting with students in class and even in my own students, there is a keen interest in, this is in a student's voice, how can I do something that will have an impact to bring about change for the better? And I think that was a little bit different than what I was experiencing 15 years ago, where the questions were more like, how can I learn about what's been done and then make a contribution to that thing that's happening? I think there's a greater sense of ownership over what is possible. I don't know. I don't think that's strictly due to AI or like even or the popularity of it. I just think perhaps thinking more broadly, what we experienced collectively during, you know, over the last five years, I think the way one understands that one can bring an impact or a positive change, I think is a little bit greater. And AI is there, I think, as a catalyst for that notion. For me, that's exciting, right? Like I'm a builder. I like to create things. Even during COVID, for example, we had this small jaunt where we would use public webcams to track like the amount of pedestrians that were outside just as a mechanism of like the shared experience. And I think now we're seeing something similar with like the shared experience with like LMs and GPT, right? Like everyone's experiencing this rapid change. Some people are a fan of it, some people are less a fan, right? But there's still this change. It's happening. It's present. It's usable. And it's exciting times. Has that change and more focus on social applications impacted your teaching style and how you design your curriculum? Yeah, so this fall, so I taught a course called Foundations of Computer Vision this past fall. It was originally created for first-year PhD students who wanted to go on to do future research in computer vision. The popularity of computer vision has just like exploded over the last whatever decade even. So now it usually caters to PhD and master students, even some undergrads do come to it. And enrollment in the fall was about 150. And despite like lecturing in person, like I used to, I would say I changed the course in two really key ways. One was I pre-recorded on average 90 minutes, if not two hours of lectures every week. That was like the main core material of that week. And I taught the course four or five times. So I kind of know the flow of ideas. And that was assigned through a web platform called Perusal, which is like social video watching. And you can like, with facial temporally add comments 
and have conversations in it. If you're a student or instructor in the class. And then in the class, we had many more interactive sessions, right? Like every week they had to read a paper and we spent like 30 minutes discussing it in small groups and they come into the center of the front of the room and then actually like bringing those discussions together. In introductory course, you couldn't do that type of thing if you weren't pre-recording and right. So much more social element to that. But on the impact side, I also was able to invite someone from industry for a 45 minute lecture over Zoom every week, right? Like every week we had someone from the outside and usually the conversations were around why are you doing what you're doing in your field, right? So there are some startups, some lab folks, some government lab folks as well. And I found it really interesting. Like many of the questions from the class were all about, were all those like why questions and like, how do I get involved in this type of work or how do you know what you're doing is making a impact in this way or that way? For me, I've thought the class a lot, but that was the most exciting part of the semester for me. So I hear you on the students there, but I'm curious about the impact on faculty as well. So the University of Michigan, obviously a world-class engineering department there, and you play a role in recruiting new faculty there. When you're making the pitch to have someone join the Michigan team, what are some non-obvious things that are part of your pitch there? Uh, it's a good question. So I'll give it in the context of the recently founded robotics department. So about 10 years ago, a group of faculty came together and formed a robotics institute. That institute created like a master's and PhD program. And it was actually quite fun. I was part of that group. And like, it really led to more interactions than I had beforehand with those same faculty. And then over the years, we realized, wait, right? Like in order to really achieve the goals we had set out to be like leaders in robotics across the gamut from learning in computational robotics all the way down to being builders, we needed to do more. And that gave rise to some studies about whether or not it was feasible to form a robotics department, which ultimately came true and it came to be positive. And the department is about 18 months old now. So normally when we are recruiting faculty to the department, we do talk about a sustained and lasting impact to society, right? Like we're not just roboticists that sit in a white tower in a nice new building doing research and writing papers. What we do collectively together, independently and so on has society and the impact to society as part of the goal, actually, as part of our mission statement that we bring in. Like case in point, we have created one of the first robotics undergraduate programs and it's been offered that we graduated the first two bachelor's degrees in robotics in Michigan last year. As part of that undergraduate program, multiple courses are actually offered through this new distributed teaching collaborative that colleagues of mine have been putting forward. You know, that means students from HBCU can attend virtually courses that are being offered on campus at Michigan. And related other courses are actually offered as GitHub repositories, fully open source. Not only are like lectures recorded and made available, but also like all the materials are there and you can do it asynchronously as well if you want. I don't have either of those things in my repertoire yet, but I'm just so happy to be around colleagues like that. That's the type of message that usually we use when recruiting, right? Like Michigan is about lasting, sustained societal impact. Michigan is about the people in robotics and like the collaborations in robotics. And I think, you know, it's not just robotics. It's true for a lot of the other departments that I interact with, at least in engineering in Michigan. But, you know, I imagine it's also true more, a little bit more broadly too. Going back to your earlier comment, Casey, about the explosion of computer vision over the past 10 years, looking at public awareness from the past year, it seems... 2023 was very much dominated by advances in NLP and various applications for LLMs. Looking at this coming year, do you have any predictions as to what some of those inflection points for the world of computer vision might be? 
It's something I think about a lot and a lot of people, it's in everyone's top of mind, right? I did make a LinkedIn post about the future of LLMs even in 24. Maybe I'll just mention my thoughts about that quickly, right? So I'm happy. I'm impressed. This is great. What amazing technology that I can go and like open up a web browser and type in a natural language and have an interaction, right? I even released my first GPT last week as part of a blog, this Paces blog, like how to read an academic paper. Is it called a Corso bot? I call it the Paces bot. The Paces is an acronym for how I recommend reading academic conference papers. My happiness and like excitement about what's happening is tempered, right? Like for me, if I can't run it like locally or like I worry about like security and privacy and so on. So I take that progress with a very cautious optimism is the way I usually say it. I think actually biggest impact LLMs are going to have in the near future is refactoring or like revolutionizing the way information is discovered. I just think that's like the ability to quickly search through a large repository of information, whether or not it's like my emails or the web, whatever, I think that is to me the most exciting thing. So let's map that to vision and imaging. So I think a lot of people are expecting now that Apple is in this like AR mixed reality world and so on, that like there will be this revolutionary impact for mixed reality. But when I was a grad student, I actually wrote two dissertation proposals. The first one was a intelligent assistant to help you with mixed reality, with like video see-through augmented reality, like navigate through environments that you didn't know about, but it did. Ultimately, I did a little bit more broad dissertation on like techniques for human-computer interaction through computer vision. I think the visual world is so complex that like in certain domains, like autonomous driving, where like what you see as you're driving is fairly standard and fairly regular, that one could anticipate building some sort of a pre-trained or what are called now foundational models in that domain that could be generally useful. I don't know if we'll see that type of general capability that you see with language as soon. For typical offices, typical maybe hospital scenarios and so on, maybe we'll see movement in that direction. Like certainly there's excitement in that direction and people will be trying it. But I don't know if the types of abilities that humans have to reason visually will be present in the next generation of foundational computer vision models. Like, for example, I can say a few words and make you envision a reality that doesn't exist. Like on the way to the office this morning, I saw a pink elephant refueling its car at a gas station. You can see that, right? Like it's there in your mind's eye and probably with like Dolly or some other diffusion model or whatever, we can generate images that look like that but those images are not necessarily tied to the physical world, right? Like Dali doesn't know that that is a very silly and impossible thing to happen. Mm -hmm. What I'm personally excited about and what you know, my research group is working on is the like physically grounded computer vision scenarios where not only are you learning how the visual world looks, but you're also learning how interaction and goal solving and other things like that in the visual world are actually happening. This is partly why I'm in the robotics department at Michigan rather than just like EE or, or computer science, even though my degree itself is in computer science. I think like the notion of physically groundedness is what really has the most potential to take the greatest leaps in the next few years, but realistic physical groundedness. Tell me more about when you're saying physical groundedness, is that a conceptual term or is that a technical one? I'm thinking pretty technically like when I'm training like a project that we have right now, for example, is an intelligent assistant that sits in a like call lens two or maybe even like the Apple Vision Pro, I think they're calling it, or like other third-party solutions. Like we have a Rokin Air Pro, which is basically like not much more than a pair of glasses and bi-directional audio video. And the whole idea is if I'm repairing a bicycle tire or I'm making a certain dish in my kitchen, as I'm doing that work, 
this intelligent agent is watching me, watching what I'm doing. And it's like a friend. It's like a helper. I'm talking to it. And it's pointing me out in my visual field. It's telling me, well, you know, you're supposed to put a half a cup of rice, but you put two thirds of a cup. That's going to change the recipe. Take out some of the rice. So in order for the system to, in our view or whatever, like to truly sort of learn about the meanings of words or concepts or actions like object detection or action recognition or semantic segmentation, our position is that those learnings are tied to either its own experiences through robots, robotic manipulation or locomotion in the real world, or through a human agent, like in this mixed reality application I'm telling you about, some hypotheses. We will need less actual label training data if it's physically grounded because the goals are more well-defined when its experiences have a richer sort of like domain over which you're learning rather than just learning over pixels, for example. Mm -hmm. Or in that physical groundedness, especially in a robotic scenario, the system can propose its own plans or goals or expectations about what happens and then execute efforts or actions in the environment and then observe what happens and then refine its plans, right? So this notion of, which is, in my view, what humans do, even as adults, when we're learning about new things or whatever, right? Like sort of predict what's going to happen if I do this. Like when you're driving, you're on like a curve. If you don't turn the wheel, you know what's going to happen. That comes from having turned the wheel in the past, having not turned the wheel in the past, right? So like that sort of physical groundedness is a training signal, a guidance signal that will forego the need for explicit training data that are annotated by humans and said be replaced by the predictions of what will happen and then the observations of what actually did happen, at least in safe settings. In making those predictive systems, then, what are some of the training inputs into that? It seems like a fairly laborious training data set to create, I imagine, thousands of students making bowls of rice. I guess it's hard to say, right? So I think the world of reinforcement learning has a lot to say about this type of mindset, except that rather than the, the like reward functions being set by hand, the reward functions are being induced by experience in the system. So in my view, the goal is to need, in fact, no grad students or undergrads or other students to get the training, the so-called training data. But the real problem lies around how do you learn and extrapolate behaviors to, from my experiences in the physical world, I play and predict, act, and so on. And then how do I observe what happens? How can I then generalize those to new scenarios? I think that's a chasm we haven't crossed in the field, right? The ability to sort of compose and generalize from past experience to new experiences without significant amounts of training data. Again, like back to the simple case of like the pink elephant refueling its car, you know pink, you know refueling, you know cars, and you know elephants. And you can compose that experience in your head without needing to observe it a single time. And in some sense, one of the technical things I'm most excited about, even LLMs and like, you know, LBMs or LMMs, like multimodal large models, is this notion of compositionality or a zero shot. Like it's jury's out right now still, but it's certainly something yeah. that we're looking at, right? Like, will these new groundbreaking capabilities lead to compositionality or generalizability or extensibility in ways that can be measured, can be predicted? can be discriminated and so on so that we can really understand the impact of these new capabilities. That's very holy grail right there. And it's um, interesting you bring up the pink elephant example. There's actually a pink elephant in Seattle that's a car wash and gas station. So it's very grounded in reality. No way. Uh, it's funny. What, I was in Seattle, I don't even know, maybe like seven years ago and I had young kids at the time. And so we made them a scavenger hunt for like all the things we were going to do by taking the bus and the tram and so on in Seattle. And we had a great time, but the pink elephant was not on our list. And I didn't 
rich searching for that. Should have done that. The, well, the troll under the bridge, we definitely visited that. <laughs> yeah, there, are, there, there are actually about 10 more trolls throughout the Seattle area now, a recent uh, art installation. Oh, so if cool. your teenagers ever want another scavenger hunt here. Well, shifting gears a bit, in addition to your academic work, you're also an entrepreneur. You founded Voxel 51 about seven years ago at this point. What inspired the initial company formation? I hate to be a broken record, but I actually do think it was at a point in my career where I was thinking about impact. What is the best way, or as an academic, what do you do? You teach students, you mentor students, you write papers and do research, and then you do service. A lot of that service is actually in the service of the other three things in some sense, right? Community-based service. And so that leaves like the research and teaching, right? So obviously it's important. Teachers are needed. It's valuable. You're like teaching the next generation and so on. From a research standpoint, I mean, I love problems. I love doing research. You know, I'm one of the few faculty members that like done been that for 20 years or whatever, who still writes code and still loves writing code. I mean, it, I love building things. But I was asking continuously or increasingly asking the question, what is the actual impact of this work? What's another paper going to add to value to the world? And so I really thought that there might be a different way or a better way to have a more near-term impact, right? Like as an academic, you can write a paper and like 10 years later, maybe see it as a feature on a phone or something like that, right? Whereas if you build a company, perhaps you can have greater impact in, in the near term. As I recently wrote about on a blog that I started, it was a lot harder than I expected to have that impact, right? Like you don't really understand the problems. It was co-founded by myself and another technical person, Brian Moore. And both of us loved to build things and wanted to have the impact, but really to understand the notion of product market fit or how to set up a go-to-market strategy, or even like recruiting people in a business setting. So it's been a journey. I've learned new things on a daily or weekly basis since we started. I think really like the notion of like, I think I can do this. I've always loved to build things. And I think that we were really driven to have like that lasting impact. I mean, that was definitely the largest part. We may have been a little bit too early, but like the notion that computer vision is going to see an increase in popularity and capability, right? This was like five years after the deep learning shift in 2012. So I think that gave us the confidence to try to do it at that time. We ultimately got started out as almost like a one-off pilot, like discovery type project or consulting type business. And once we found our way in 51, which is this open source developer tool that is like the core product that we build now. It was really exciting because we had confidence, like self-confidence that like, okay, this is what a startup is. We've talked to hundreds of people and they need this thing we're building or we already built, frankly. And we had a great sense of like, okay, the right way to bring this out into the world is to just talk about it. We began doing what our investors were calling earned marketing, which was basically writing a lot of blogs about the capabilities of the tool, giving a lot of talks and getting people to integrate with it and use it. And it's been released for about three years and five months now, maybe a little bit less than that. And we have about 2 million downloads, right? Like, so that impact there, we, we didn't reach yeah. it. So it's been great to build that community around the open source tool and really like kind of like keep your ear to the pavement to understand what the need, how is it being used and like really connect it back to that original goal of like bringing new capabilities around computer vision and development. Along that journey from zero to now 2 million plus downloads, what were some of the pivots along the way and where did those insights come from? First thing was like we learned was meeting the user base, really where the need was. Like initially we thought we were going to be building capabilities to generate like downstream insights from video for business intelligence ultimately. 
And, you know, it just occurred to us that really the community wasn't there yet. There just wasn't enough confidence in the capabilities of computer vision systems to go and invest money in that. So we went early, much earlier in the life cycle as a developer tool, really. Like at its core, 51 is a system, like a Python framework that lets you easily ask intelligent questions about your data sets, your models, and the work you do with your data sets and your models. However, like, what are the right questions to be asking? What are the best practices in computer vision system building, right? Like, you have to look at your data. If you don't look at your data and you just look at the precision recall or the accuracy number, how can you predict? How can you be confident in how it's going to perform in practice? You know, if you're fielding an autonomous vehicle on the street or a surgical instrument or whatever, right? Like, you haven't looked at the corner cases, the failure modes visually, understood them, like, tried to solve them, then it's irresponsible to go and bring that thing to you as a product. So this notion of best practices, we built into the tool initially. However, like one of the key things we learned was that the way our users wanted to use the software was not what we expected in all cases, right? Like one thing we did was support, like it was one of the first tools and it is open source too. So it's like easily available, like pip install 51 and you got it. Like first tool to support video as a first order data type. And like a lot of computer vision is steeped in images still, even though like videos dominate the number of data, the number of bits through like Cisco routers globally, they're just hard to work with. So we added video support and we use that new like HTML browser-based video tags as like the core renderer. But we learned that some of our users wanted to work with, for example, like medical image volumes. And we didn't support that. It's non-trivial to support that in the browser. I'm sure, I'm sure there's no source tool for that, but we still don't have support for it natively. But what they did was so creative, right? Like rendered the slices of the medical images as a video and then played it back. But we needed to add like frame by frame playback, which was not supported out of the box for that need. The key thing we learned was like the need to like always listen to your user base and evolve the tool according to what you hear. We heard initially... Images and video were supported. Then we started to hear a lot of chatter about point clouds. So I want to use 51 for robotics. I want to use 51 for geospatial problems. Right? So we added point clouds. And then they were scooped up. Feature that's coming down the pike, which we've heard about more recently, was like, we want to add mesh support with capabilities of diffusion, deep learning capabilities for 3D meshes. We don't support it yet, but we are adding it right now. Just also based on user feedback. I think that was really the key. The medical imaging example, it's close to home. I remember playing with various DICOM files and those just never caused good things. I totally agree. I, I did a postdoc in medical imaging at UCLA. And so there's DICOM and then there's analyze format. And there probably are like six other formats for three volumes. The code that was required just to ingest that data into your system, you know, was a nightmare. So I think actually if we can add medical imaging support to 51, it will help. But there's a fairly large software community in the medical imaging space as well. Like ImageJ was invaluable to me as a postdoc, if I recall correctly. Yeah. After all these years of working with so many different types of customers, do any particular customer stories come to mind that are favorites in terms of showing the impact of the tool on a team? Uh, I probably can't name this particular customer, but I can give you two stories. I can't name either of them, but they're both large Fortune 100 customers. And I guess it should be clear, just in case the listeners here don't, or maybe you don't even know, like what's the difference between open source and 51 teams, what we sell? So open source is unlimited machine learning capabilities, totally free, pip install 51 or git clone or repo, whatever. As long as there are three assumptions are met, local data, one user, local compute. If you violate those assumptions, it gets difficult to use. It's not designed for that really. In fact, we should write a paper about this, but there's like a really nice tight connection between the Python shell and the web-based app. 
in the open source tool. Like anything you do in the app is immediately reflected in the Python session and vice versa. So it's like it was designed, I hate to say it, but kind of like designed like with the MATLAB interactive setting in mind. Whereas in the enterprise version, those assumptions are meaningless, right? Like in the sense that like it's a collaborative version of the open source tool where like it's always on web-based or SSO, it has versioning, it like supports collaboration. It's kind of like open source is like Git and the commercial versions is like GitHub. So back to the story, the funnest, the story I, I ever heard was before this team bought the tool actually, it goes something like, we've been developing this data set for the last year and I wanted to try out 51 teams. So I took a very small subset of the data set, like 600 samples or 1,000 samples. I loaded it into 51 and began to play with the data. I, I looked at the embeddings. I looked at the images locally. I ran, there's some capabilities for like finding stakes in data. This person ran mistakenness, which is one of those capabilities. And he told me like within two hours of working with this small subset of the data set, he found dozens of mistakes that were in the data for like the last year that this team was using. That was like an initial big win, right? Like you go from like, I trust this data set, right? Because in our, in my view, data is as important, if not more important than models these days, right? Like in some sense, when we're building AI systems or computer vision systems, we engage in this co-development of data sets and models together. They are married. You cannot divorce one from the other, right? You know, in some sense, at least that's the way it is in practice. I think in research, it's a little different. It's kind of like, okay, what's the latest data set to use from Meta or from some lab? I go download the data set. Now I got to work on my model to execute on that data set. And the data set's kind of fixed. Practice, that could not be farthest from the truth. And that's one of the biggest things I learned in the last five years working with 51 and these users. But anyway, like this notion that he had this data set that his team trusted. And then within just a, a little bit of time, visualizing it, being able to like lasso on embeddings or query for certain model performances on subset of the data to find the mistakes. Like it was really fun to hear. And that was already the big win. Like this person had a big win pretty quickly. Another team, less of a story, just like a accolade, is that one team stopped work for weeks, like three weeks to like speed up acquisition of the tool so that they could not waste their own time building a tool in-house and just use 51. That was a pretty cool thing to hear, actually. One interesting term you brought up there, Jason, is the user's ability to trust data set. Do you know of any generalizable metrics out there that speak to the trustworthiness and reliability of a data set? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm not aware of any well-known work, at least, that could assess the bias, like problem invariant bias in this yeah. data set, for example. I'm not aware of great work or widely available work in that direction. There might be some, so I could have just missed it. As a founder, as you probably know, like I haven't had much time to read too much literature in the last few years. However, I do have some ideas around this, and I do think I'm not alone in that. In my view, one way you could assess the viability or the quality of a data set is by taking like subsets of that data set, treating independent models on those subsets, and then measuring like a variance across the performance of those models. Like this is not that novel. In statistics, yeah. it's sometimes called jackknife or cross-validation even. I think the variability or like the distribution of performance across those subsets is likely correlated with the quality of that data set, at least on a good holdout gold standard. I don't have any concrete evidence for that, but I do think it's an important problem. And I think it's something that will be even more important as AI or whatever gets more widely used. For the very last question I have for you, Jason, is coming back to current events, something that kind the world have been following quite a bit lately is the New York Times copyright infringement case against OpenAI. Depending on how that court ruling goes, it definitely has lots of impact on how a lot of these LLMs are structured. 
I'm wondering if one, you have any opinions on that case, and two, if you feel that it'll have repercussions on any of the research areas that you focus on. It's a key hotbed question, right? Admittedly, a little bit murky too. For me, my feet are on both sides. I appreciate the labor and the hard work that goes into building data sets, to writing articles, to doing research. There's immense value in that to society and beyond. And yet I'm also a technologist to some degree. I mean, maybe I'm a cautious technologist or I'm not like one who's just going to go out and buy the latest or trust the latest because I think it's important to think carefully about what we're building as a society. And maybe we don't do enough of that yet. But in this particular case, I guess I lean toward the What's so hard about paying the license fees? This is content that was developed and designed and owned by individuals. Its existence on the web is like sort of publicly accessible existence does not mean it doesn't have certain rights associated with it. I don't know how it's going to come out, but I would generally believe that if someone creates something and it's in their right to say that this is not for public commercial consumption without a fee, I think that right should be respected broadly. Do I think it is going to damage or have a great impact on modern AI or the future of that? I don't know how much OpenAI wants or these companies that are selling or building, building these models and so on want us to believe that it wouldn't be possible without scraping all that data, which alone I find interesting, if that's the case. There probably are a rich amount of resources that are available to broaden the training and the learning that are not behind paywalls or not licensed in that way or that there's a certain cost associated with doing business. And I think that just because one has made a great advance doesn't mean you're excused from that cost. I would expect that there is a rather fair, equitable outcome at the end of the tunnel. It just might be a long tunnel before we find that fair and equitable outcome. Yeah, it seems the core technology stays the same. It's just a matter of the business model. Yeah, I mean, if you want to tie it back to my earlier point, right? Like, look, I'm excited about all these advances, 100%. At the same time, I'm personally not a huge fan of like typing or like interacting with an LM that is housed on someone else's server somewhere in which everything I save to this piece of software is going to then go and become the property of the company in which I'm chatting with. In my case, like my company gives away most of our work open source, for example. As an academic, I force my students to release all the code, to produce all the results in all of our papers as open source. It's a mindset, I think, to really give this stuff away, give these advances away. Now, I would be much more comfortable myself if I could run a service on a node in the cloud that is a, a highly capable LLM that I interact with directly or some small subset of people to interact with. I'm the kind of person who also doesn't really like to have my data in the cloud, for example. So I think there's a spectrum for everything and I'm on one end of the spectrum. And if I remember correctly, you're also the type of person that prefers to code and hustle? Yes, I do like to be choosy about how I set up the language in which you work or the processes in which you work, in my view, can and do impact the way you work and the outcomes of that work. So I think there's a great novel called Babel 17, which is really what I read years ago that got me into thinking in that direction. I love reading, actually. You, and you're in Seattle, right? Or near Seattle. Yeah. So like, I became very cautious about data living on disparate systems after I read Neil Stevenson's Cryptonomicon. In fact, I began like locally encrypting all my files before like there were easily encryptable file systems from operating systems. When I would like open them in VI or Emacs, they would de-encrypt. And then when I would save it, they would encrypt again to this. They were only unencrypted in memory. But sometimes those types of systems do take a lot of time to set up and maintain yeah. as well. So there's the balance, right? Well, Jason, thank you so much for sharing about your work and what you've been up to. Really excited to see what type of research comes out of your lab the next couple months. Thanks, Shake. It's a great pleasure to chat. Yeah. 
Thanks for the invitation again. This podcast is brought to you by H10. Part about advanced technology that never changes is the need for the right people to design, build, and manage it. H10 offers just that with an on-demand talent and management service that covers all aspects of engineering, program management, and AI. Trusted by over 400 companies, including half of the Fortune 10, H10 is here to help lighten your load and make you the hero. 